You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. We gotta live on science alone. Welcome to Unbiased Science, where we bring scientific method to the madness. We're your hosts, Dr. Jessica Steyer. And Dr. Andrea Love. And this week, we have a very fun departure from COVID, and we're going to answer the question, why do things taste different to different people? And we're also going to incorporate some real-world data and demonstrate some data collection methods while we're at it. So it's a, kind of a, a fun, a different type of episode than we usually do. Um, a light one, maybe, right before the holidays, because I think we could all use a little bit of a breather. So before we do that, let's just recap last week's episode, uh, where we tackled the very controversial topic of homeopathy. So we kick things off with a discussion of the homeopathy industry, its growing popularity in the U.S. and also around the world. We did a pretty deep dive into the history of homeopathy, how it came to be, and its two guiding principles. We discussed some of the most commonly used homeopathic remedies and how they were developed. And then we, you know, we really scoured the evidence and we, we discussed the science or rather lack thereof of science of homeopathic remedies and studies that have investigated the effectiveness and safety of these products. We then spent a little time talking about the risks and warnings that the FDA has issued regarding toxicity concerns. We end the episode with a discussion of homeopathy around the world and some well-known campaigns on this topic. If you haven't tuned into that episode, we highly recommend it. Um, we got quite a bit of feedback. I'd say mostly positive, um, but also some some pretty uh, upset people who, um, you know, use homeopathy and, and feel that it works. Uh, but anyhow... So the other cool thing about today's episode is that we are joined by our very own Montana Mullins. Uh, you might remember Montana from our episode on diabetes. Montana, would you like to say hello to everyone? Hi, Herd. I'm so happy to be back um, and talking about a lighter topic than diabetes. But also just a little side note, I am a diabetic and we can have ice cream. So... <laughs> That is important to mention. I feel like yes. a lot of people probably don't realize that. All right. Andrea, do you want to kick things off? Yes. So um, as Jess kind of alluded to, we're going to answer the question, why do things taste different to different people? And so we're going to talk, we're going to start out talking a little bit about the science of taste, and we're going to segue that into some real-world data collection on how surveys in particular can aid in research. And Today, we're going to use ice cream as our example. So as you know, Jess and myself are ice cream fanatics. I pretty much have ice cream daily. Um, I want to get myself a shirt for all of my road races that say fueled by ice cream. Um, I, I literally can't end my day without having ice cream in some capacity. So 
Um, you are, and I'm an ice cream lover too, um, big time, and I know we're going to talk about different flavors. I definitely gravitate to certain flavors over others, so I'm very excited to, to dig into this, and you better believe I will be having ice cream <laughs> after we record this episode, because now I, I have ice cream on the brain. I'm so hungry, and I'm very much going to have ice cream later, <laughs> after a run. <laughs> oh my god. See, I um, don't have a thing that undoes... <laughs> <laughs> the calorie intake of ice cream. So just, uh, you just threw that in there, Andrea. Thank oh, you. no, no, no. I mean, honestly, you know, I get a lot of comments where they're like, oh, well, you know, you run all this, therefore you can eat all that. And I don't think that exercise needs to be like a punishment or something you have to do to earn your food. You know, just enjoy your food and just like everything, moderation. Um, Love that. Love that. So, all right. So let's kind of dig into the science. So there's a lot of different components involved in how we taste things. There's the actual detection of flavors. There's actually, you know, there's there's chemicals involved, which we're going to get into. There's our taste buds. There's the structure and function of those. And then, of course, there are reasons, there are biological reasons why we have individual preferences. So really starting from the beginning, the big picture, our tongues, right? Our tongue is, well, it's a muscular organ that enables us to eat our food, but it's covered with bumps, right? And some of, all of these bumps are called papillae. There are different types of papillae across our tongue, but there are specific ones that are particularly important in, with regard to tasting. So the fungiform papillae are the bumps that are located mostly on the top toward the front of your tongue and on the sides of your tongue. Um, these give your tongue a rough texture, which actually helps you eat. It helps you move things around in your mouth so you can chew things and swallow things. But they also contain our taste buds. And they also contain some other things called temperature sensing cells that actually enable us to differentiate between hot foods and cold foods and so on and so forth. And those are important components in, in taste as well. So the taste buds are really the important part. So those are what we call our sensory organs. And that these are the organs of our gustatory system, which is our, our taste system, basically. Um, the average adult has between 2,000 and 10,000 taste buds, and these actually recycle um, every two to three weeks on our tongue. So t- as taste buds are dying, new taste buds are developing. Um, now, each taste bud that you have, those are the, the basically the things inside the papillae. Within each taste bud, you have between 50 and 150 taste receptor cells. So these are individual cells that are actually the cells that recognize and signal to our brain what we're tasting. So as you can imagine, there's variability in the number of these papillae that people have. So people that have a lot of papillae, these are what we call our super tasters. And so they can be very sensitive and and often can find flavors overwhelming. So, you know, they have to kind of dial things back a little bit because they have so many taste buds um, because papillae correlate to taste buds, which then correlate to those taste receptors, things can be very overwhelming. On the on the other side of the spectrum, you have your subtasters, and those are people that are going to have low numbers of papillae, and they may need to really amplify the amount of spices or the amount of flavors um, in their foods because they're not quite as sensitive. So even... 
Yeah, go ahead. Can I just jump in here? And I, I think that this is a little different, but I know smokers, I don't know that they're considered sub-tasters, but I know that smoking does impact the taste buds. I know my father, Absolutely. who yeah. he was a major, you know, a two-pack-a-day minimum smoker, um, and he would, basically, that's why he added so much salt to everything, right? Um, so are they considered sub-tasters, or is that different? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so, so smoking certainly can affect, um, it can actually cause more cell death of the taste buds themselves. So not only might you be recycling them more quickly, but you may lose the density of your taste buds over time, particularly if you're a chronic smoker. Um, and so it you can actually shift. Um, so a lot of these lifestyle habits can affect your ability to taste things, certainly. So, you know, once upon a time, and I know, Jess, you and I were chatting about that, you know, we used to think that the tongue was divided into sections like, you know, the salty region of the tongue and the sweet region of the tongue and the bitter region of the tongue. And now we actually know that these taste buds that can detect all these different types of flavors or these taste, you know, these taste categories are really evenly distributed across the whole area of the tongue. So let's kind of dig in a little bit further. So we've got these taste buds. They can taste the the five major tastes. So those are sweet, umami, which is like the savory flavor, um, bitter, salty, and sour. So those are our five basic tastes. And those are recognized by those taste receptor cells, which are within our taste buds. Um, And so the taste receptor cells, remember there's about 50 to 150 per taste bud, those are the cells that actually detect the things that we eat. And basically what happens is when we're eating something, they recognize different molecules and they relay that information to our brain, which is where we then perceive those tastes. So they, they transmit those signals to specific types of neurons, which are called the gustatory neurons, because again, the gustatory system is our, is our taste system. But obviously, tastes are more complicated than just sweet, salty, bitter, sour, and umami, right? So each of these taste receptor cells have hundreds of genes, which, as you, as you might remember, correspond to proteins in those cells. And those proteins, which are what we call receptors, they, they actually recognize specific molecules and they relay messages. They, they ultimately recognize molecules that, that correspond to these different tastes. So there are different types of structural proteins that recognize sweet, umami, and bitter flavors as compared to salty and sour. Um, I'm not going to get into the actual types of receptors, um, but if you are curious, your sweet, umami, and bitter are G-protein coupled receptors, and your salty and sour are channel receptors um, for all of my molecular biology folks. Oh my gosh. Andrea so, can't help herself. She always I has help. to. I can't. I can't. I had to. She I has to. to. I won't and I won't get into I won't get into more detail, but if anybody wants more detail, send me a message. Oh my gosh. Oh um, my goodness. Can I just say one other thing? I know, you know, we're talking about taste buds on the tongue, but isn't it true that we have taste buds in other places, like in the back of our throats, on our epiglottis, and our nose and sinuses and part of yeah, our Yeah, 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 exactly. Okay. So so those those are, you know, they're not taste receptor cells. They're actually olfactory.
sensory receptor cells, but very similar. And they actually are required to participate in this whole discussion, right? So for for the full scope of your taste, you have these olfactory receptors, which are located in the, the uppermost part of the nose and, and your kind of, you know, far respiratory passages. And they work in tandem with those taste receptor cells. So as you're chewing things, the food is releasing chemicals that travel up into your nasal passages those chemicals bind to these olfactory receptors which are also proteins that are located inside the nose cells and they work together with those taste receptor cells to create this flavor profile so that's why when you're congested a lot of times your taste seems dulled because if you can't smell things and you can't activate the olfactory receptors you're not going to be able to taste things as as concretely Right. And that's why I, I remember when I first learned this, I did that, you know, the test where you could hold your nose the next time you eat something and you could notice like your taste buds are able to, to tell your brain something about what you're eating. Like you, you could maybe tell that it's sweet, but you won't be able to pick up the exact flavor until you let go of your nose. So yeah, we have to shut out the olfactory receptors as well, for sure. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so, you know, we've got all of these different cells, these, these, these cells that have these receptors and, you know, ultimately this is going to relay these signals, these messages to our brain. And we're going to be like, oh, hey, I'm eating pizza. It's delicious. But what actually allows us to do that, um, when we're actually eating these things and, and ultimately it all boils down to chemicals. So if you remember, everything is chemicals and that includes Everything that we eat that imparts flavor to food and any other substance, whether it's edible or inedible, right? Most things have a flavor if you put them in your mouth. So every flavor that we detect is composed of specific combinations of different types of chemicals, which bind to and activate those different proteins in those taste receptor cells and in those olfactory receptor cells. So depending on the number of different molecules in that food and the different combination of those different molecules in food, different signals will be sent to our brains for us to perceive those flavors. So it's not just as simple as, oh, I'm eating a cookie, that's sweet. I'm eating ice cream, that's also sweet. There are, there are nuance between that. You can tell if you're eating a chocolate chip cookie versus an oatmeal raisin cookie or you're eating vanilla ice cream versus chocolate ice cream. And all of that is related to these different chemicals that are in these different foods. So I'm not going to get into kind of the the nitty gritty, but there are very stereotypical categories of chemicals that are known to impart flavors. Um, And many of these are called the aromatic chemicals. So some common ones, and I'm going to use a couple of key examples in a minute, Um, But we have the carboxylic acids. So these are organic acids that have a particular chemical structure called our carboxyl group. And these are typically going to be your your sours. So acetic acid, which is, you know, you have in your citrus fruits, you also have in in, um, your vinegar. Um, Carboxylic acids can also impart a rancid sort of flavor. Um, So if things spoil, sometimes that's caused by the production of carboxylic acids. Um, We have alcohols. So alcohols have an alcohol group, which is what we call a hydroxyl or an OH. So alcohols can impart different sorts of flavors. One that's commonly encountered is, um, you know, imparts like a like a minty sort of freshness flavor. We have esters, which are uh, basically a combination between an acid and an alcohol. And these typically have a, a fruity or a floral aroma. 
Um, we have the aldehydes and ketones, and these are very common in aromatics. Um, these are very unique structures. They have a very specific chemical bond in them. And these often have very, very strong flavor profiles. And three things that we're going to talk about in a minute, um, they include the major component of vanilla, the major component of almond and cherry flavoring, and the major component of cinnamon flavoring. Um, can I can I jump in with one thing before yeah. we move on to that? Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market so you you mentioned something that i think is worth reiterating so you know you you mentioned um spoiled flavor right Mm -hmm. Uh, that that, okay so it's i think we have to shout out that taste buds are really there's an evolutionary purpose right they're designed Mm -hmm. to keep us alive um and they've helped helped us uh evolve as humans and so you know the sense of taste basically serves to help us test the foods that we ate. So bitter and sour tastes might um, have indicated poisonous plants or rotting foods. The back of our tongue is uh, sensitive to bitter tastes, so we could spit out poisonous or spoiled foods before we swallow them. And then sweet and salty tastes let us know that foods were rich in nutrients. So I just think it's very cool. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's, it's totally, it's, it's completely evolutionary based, you know, they've, they've traced it back, you know, close to 200 million years where very specific taste receptors were actually, actually evolved in, in other organisms and obviously have now, you know, moved into humans and as well. And, and I'm going to talk about a couple of examples of that in just a minute, but absolutely, if we weren't able to taste these different chemicals, you know, we wouldn't survive in the wild ultimately. <laughs> um, I feel like this would be a good time to talk about the cilantro thing because that has a lot to do with taste buds you know there's a certain group of people who cilantro tastes very soapy to them whereas for other people it so I'm one of those people cannot stand cilantro get a heavy soapy taste it makes it's the worst the worst and that's it's so funny because that soapy that's that's an aldehyde that's one of that that compound that category just talked about and so there's actually a gene involved um, it's it's in the olfactory receptor, so the the nose taste receptor essentially. Um, and people ha- who have a variation of that gene perceive cilantro as being very soapy tasting. And um, An- Andrea, are you, pr- are you do you love cilantro? Do you I love cilantro. I know I love cilantro. Yeah, Same. I love. I it. eat it like it's sad. Oh god, I, I'm but, so obsessed. With oh. But I can if I eat a lot of it, I can. I can I can see where that soapy flavor would come from. Like you can get a hint of it, but I don't find that like too intense or off-putting. But they say now it's somewhere between four and fifteen percent of the population actually has this particular gene mutation where they like it tastes like a bar of soap to them. Oh my cilantro goodness. haters, I'm yeah. right there with you. Let's unite, <laughs> boo, guys. <laughs> boo. Team cilantro. Okay, sorry, oh Andrea. Go on. <laughs> but it's all it's all genetics, right? And so that's and and you know, Montana, you, you use a great example there of different preferences. And it actually 
it's not just behavior. It's actually in our genes. It's in our proteins, in our body. So, you know, I'm not going to talk too much more about the different types of chemicals. Um, we'll, maybe we'll put the list up on the website. But but three that I kind of wanted to, to highlight were some of those aromatic aldehydes. So the first one is vanillin, which is the major component of vanilla. Um, the official or the UPAC name for this is 4-hydroxy-3-methoxybenzaldehyde. Doesn't sound quite as smooth off the tongue as vanillin, but, um, but that's what imparts vanilla, that very characteristic vanilla flavor. Um, another one in the same family is called benzaldehyde, so it's a simpler kind of structure than the vanillin, and that's what imparts that almond flavor, you know, we encounter very often in all sorts of different foods. And then another aldehyde is cinnamaldehyde, which is the major component of that stereotypical cinnamon flavor. So all of these different molecules combine in different combinations and different proportions, and you can actually plot this. Um, you know, food chemists and things like that can actually determine you know, how something's going to taste, they can create, this is how often they create artificial flavors by using these sorts of chemical combinations so that when you eat something, it's going to taste like how those molecules should taste. Um, but, but as Montana mentioned, you know, some people have different preferences. So, you know, why is it that people prefer some flavors over others? And so first is obviously the structure and the function of those taste buds. Um, so we know that people that have more papillae are going to be more sensitive to flavors and people that have fewer papillae might be less sensitive to flavors. So you have the finite number of those taste buds and taste receptors, but you also have those individual abilities to detect those chemicals. So you know, everybody generally, unless you have a taste disorder, can recognize those tastes, bitter, sweet, salty, sour, and umami. But the combination and the detection of the kind of nuances within those categories is going to vary from person to person. Just bitter alone, um, there have been at least 40 genes that are dedicated to detecting bitter tastes. So in one person, they may be expressing a gene that enables them to better detect a certain combination of bitter flavor molecules compared to another person. And a lot of this is indeed evolutionary. So an example, um, as just mentioned, you know, a lot of poisonous plants and animals and insects even often have a bitter flavor. And so these sensitivities to bitter tastes arose during the course of evolution. And so data suggests that the ability to detect bitter evolved almost 200 million years ago. And these receptors are in um, a specific family of taste receptors. And within that family, there's about 25 different receptors that have already been identified. And this is in all different species, not just humans. Because of course, you know, a fox is out in the woods. They need to know that what they eat isn't going to kill them either, right? So, so all of these animals and organisms have these different taste receptors. So Within humans, though, you know, most toxic plants taste bitter, and it's theorized that nomadic groups that came into contact, you know, these hunter-gatherer um, nomads, would over time evolve these receptors to better enable them to avoid those. Because, of course, when you have evolution, um, survival of the fittest, if, if you eat a toxic plant and you die, you're ultimately not going to be, be reproducing. People that are able to detect those are going to survive and ultimately reproduce. And in contrast, people from malaria-infested parts of the world actually have a gene that makes them less sensitive to bitter, um, particularly the bitter that's associated with the chemical cyanide. 
And a lot of that is thought to be because cyanide um, at very low concentrations, because remember the dose makes the poison, cyanide can kill malaria parasites, but it doesn't harm the host, again, at a low dose. Um, And so having an advantage to be able to tolerate cyanide could enable people in areas where malaria is prevalent to survive while being able to consume cyanide. And a side note, quinine, which is also an anti-malaria compound, is also bitter. And that's the thing in tonic water that makes it taste the way it does. So yeah, so ultimately, there's all these different things that contribute. So it's personal genetics, it's the taste receptors themselves, it's the taste buds, evolution of humans, and even learned behaviors can all contribute to how we detect, perceive, and prefer different flavors. So I think that this, Andrea, this might be a good opportunity to use different flavors to demonstrate data collection methods. (laughs) Um, You know, this is really cool because as you said, Andrea, there are so many differences in in preferences. And actually, as you say bitter, do you happen to like, Montana and Andrea, do you like bitter tasting things? Do you like... That I do. Profile? Yeah. But but I have a limit. Like I like like I love tonic water. Like a gin and tonic is one of my favorite drinks, but like certain beers if they're too bitter, I won't go for them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, oftentimes it's it's got to be a balance. Like not too bitter, but bitter enough. I can't stand bitter. I just don't like it. I I love really all veggies. I love my like broccoli, but broccoli rob. Have you ever? Oh had, yeah, I, I love broccoli so, rob, but it's very uh-huh. bitter. Yeah, it's very I can't bitter. do it. I can't. Do you like bitter? Um, I'm kind of like Andrea. Like I have a threshold, but I feel like my threshold is a lot lower than hers. So <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. she seems to. She love does. <laughs> All right. So, so wait, so let, you guys are yeah. like, you guys are like milk chocolate, white chocolate, whereas oh, I'm like yes. 70% dark chocolate. Ew. Milk chocolate all the way. White chocolate's too yes. sweet for me. Yeah. But dark chocolate, especially the higher concentrations of whatever, I don't even know. I, I can't do dark chocolate. Not enjoyable so at all. Yeah. I'm the opposite. (laughs) Oh my God. Um, All right. So can I talk about data collection a little bit? Will Mm -hmm. you allow me to nerd out? All right. So I could honestly dedicate there. We could have a hundred episodes dedicated to data collection and it still wouldn't be enough, but I'll just say that there are two overarching types of data collection, quantitative and qualitative. Quantitative data collection involves the collection of numerical data using close-ended multiple choice questions. Think surveys, right? Surveys, quantitative. Whereas qualitative data collection is all about the open-ended questions that allow for in-depth contextual information. Um, And and Jess, for for my lab scientist folks, quantitative data would be everything that we measure in the lab, like levels of protein and, you know, all the things that we're hearing about COVID with antibody titers, that's quantitative data. And I mean, there are, it's not just survey exactly, as you just said. So, you know, I do health policy evaluation and will often analyze, um, you know, claims data, for example, you know, it doesn't all have to be survey, but I feel like for most people, that's maybe the most accessible example of, you know, a quantitative data collection tool. Um, And then when we talk about quality, 
qualitative, we're talking about things like in-depth interviews or key informant interviews or focus groups. And these are very different data collection techniques. Obviously, when we're dealing with quantitative, quantitative, excuse me, you're thinking numerical, right? So we're dealing with numbers and statistics, while qualitative research deals with words and meanings and context. So quantitative methods allow us to systematically measure variables and test hypotheses, whereas qualitative methods allow us to explore concepts and experiences in more detail. What is a big pet peeve of mine is that people sometimes seem to think that one method is better than the other. Um, that's really not the case. They just provide different information and you would use quantitative data collection in certain contexts or in certain situations and qualitative in another. So let's bring it to, have we, yes, we, we started talking about ice cream. I know we could talk about ice cream. <laughs> I mean, I used it to, to illustrate a couple of points in terms of my yes. vanilla flavoring. <laughs> yes. So, so let's say I were an ice cream store owner and I wanted to figure out which ice cream flavors to sell. I might do a survey. Maybe that's the first thing that comes to my mind. I want to do a survey. And I would ask, let's say this is a question of my survey. What is your favorite flavor of ice cream? So I'm going to ask you guys this. What is your favorite flavor of ice cream? And it's multiple choice. Vanilla, chocolate, strawberry, or other? Andrea? Other. Okay. Montana? Strawberry. And I would probably, see, I'm torn. I would be between vanilla or other. Ultimately, I would, because I, I presented with the choices in this way, I would probably select vanilla. Okay. So now let's say 100 people took this survey, 20 selected vanilla, 45 selected chocolate, and 35 selected other. Based on these survey results, it's clear that chocolate is the most popular flavor among the people surveyed. But what about the other category? So I'm sure everyone who's listened has taken a survey at some point. So sometimes there might be fill-in responses, but without any kind of structure. So Andrea, you said other. What, mm -hmm. what would you, how would you respond if I prompted you to fill in? What would your other be? My all-time favorite, if I had to pick like across all brands, variety mm -hmm. would be cookies and cream. Okay. So I would answer pistachio. Okay. Um, so let's say there's no structure and all the people, the 35 people who selected other, they put 35 different responses. <laughs> that wouldn't be very helpful to me, right? From a data collection perspective, what would I do with that information? With 35 different responses, I, I can't find a pattern, right? I, I can't aggregate the data in any way because they're all different. I mean, so if you were the ice cream yeah. store owner, you could just sell 37 flavors. Wow. Well, that might get expensive, um, but you're right. I mean, in theory, you could. So this just makes me think that, you know, sometimes, and actually, let me take a step back for a second. I feel like whenever we talk about research, people always really focus on the analysis, like the statistics, like that is seems to be the scariest component of research to people. Mm -hmm. And I always tell people, actually, the most important step of research is in the design stage. And if you're collecting primary data, it's the proper development of, uh, of, a, of some sort of your, you know, of your data collection instrument. 
And so what we sometimes do is we'll do a little pilot. So let's say we treat that first survey as a pilot. I got 35 other write-in responses. That's not helpful to me. So now let's say that I would, you know, I, I could ask questions that are contingent on the response to the first question. So for example, if you responded other, is your favorite flavor fruit-based? And then that could be a binary yes, no, let's say. So Andrea, if I were asking you, um, what did you say your favorite flavor was? Cookies and cream? Mm-hmm. So your answer would be no. And then maybe that could go to another question. You know, is it nut-based? Again, no. And, you know, we could keep going down the line. And, and right. doing something like this would allow us to narrow down the flavors more clearly. Excuse me. But maybe there are flavors that we haven't even considered. And maybe my understanding of flavors is limited. So if I'm creating a survey, it's limited by my knowledge of flavors, right? Mm -hmm. So maybe, maybe there are some better tools that we could use. And we'll talk about that in a second. But this is really important because, you know, Andrea, there's this rise of gourmet and chef-driven ice cream companies, right? And they experiment with all sorts of flavor and ingredient combinations. You know, (laughs) it makes, I mean, it makes, for me as an ice cream fanatic, it makes it really difficult to make decisions. Um, But yeah, so I mean, one of, one of our favorite companies is Salt and Straw. It's, you know, a favorite example of these, these gourmet ice cream shops. It, It started as a small push cart in Portland, Oregon, and it now has shops all along the West Coast, and they actually have some shops um, now on the East Coast this year, two in Miami, and they're going to have one in Disney in the spring. And another of course, cool just when I leave Florida, just when I, I leave Florida. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> go on. Um, and the other cool thing for for folks that like ice cream but maybe don't eat dairy, twenty percent of their menu is vegan at all times, and they actually have an entire month where the menu is completely dairy free, and that's in January, and they call it. Um, vegan indulgence. And I have to say that, you know, I've tried some of their vegan flavors and I don't eat vegan and they're very delicious. So let's let folks know that we are friends with the folks at Salt and Straw and they were kind enough to send us their incredible menu of flavors, which we have to talk about. And they let us pick flavors for taste testing. Um, And that actually helped to inspire today's episode. So thank you, Salt and Straw. Um, Montana, do you want to talk about some of the different flavors? Yes, absolutely. Um, And I also want to give a shout out to Molly over at Salt and Straw. Um, She's the one that was working behind the scenes, helping me coordinate everything. She made sure that we got the shipments that we wanted. And she just really took good care of us. So thank you so much, Molly. But yeah, Salt and Straw offers a lot of unique flavors that really play on a lot of the, the taste buds and the different flavor receptors that Andrea was talking about earlier. So they have some things like buttermilk pancakes with bacon and eggs, pear and blue cheese. There's a jasmine milk tea, a honey lavender, a pear with cinnamon swirl. So a lot of different unique flavors that really play on the different types of taste, you know, sweet and salty, savory, bitter, they cover it all. And so when we were given this menu of options, we picked all th- all three of us got to pick five. Was six, it five yeah, or six? six, 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 
Oh my goodness. Six flavors that stood out to us. Now, before we even talk about what we selected, and we're going to do some, you know, mock data collection and very high level analysis here. Um, I want to say if I was putting my, my, my research cap on, one thing I could do just to get a sense of which flavors are more popular, we could actually analyze, right, uh, let's say orders of the existing flavors that they have. So how many people ordered this flavor? Does that change by season? And we can do some analyses to determine which are most popular, which are least popular. But that doesn't help us with the unknown flavors that maybe we could be offering that we just don't know about. And for that, qualitative data collection would be the more appropriate approach. So before we talk about that, can we just, let's just tell people, I'm sure they're very curious, which flavors we chose. So I have the list here. I'll start out with what I ordered. I don't know if you guys know what you ordered. I also mm -hmm. have that here. But I chose pear and blue cheese yes you heard correctly um almond brittle with salted ganache candied walnut cheesecake sea salt with caramel ribbons jasmine milk tea and chocolate and honey lavender andrea do you know what you got or do you want i me to do tell you? so okay. i picked and this was a very tough decision for me but i picked buttermilk pancakes bacon and eggs uh, sea salt with caramel ribbons, candied walnut cheesecake, salted malted chocolate chip cookie dough. Was that five already? Almond brittle with salted ganache. And then I actually picked a vegan one this time, which was called the Great Cookie Swap. I chose uh, almond brittle with salted ganache, buttermilk, pancake, bacon, and eggs. The Great Cookie Swap, which is the vegan one that Andrea mentioned. Delicious. Uh, candied walnut cheesecake pear with cinnamon swirl and for a wild card i chose bug juice which is actually another vegan flavor but it's also a sorbet okay how cool are these flavors first of all but second of all just looking at that there seems i don't know how many was it three or four flavors that you two overlapped lacked yeah, i feel like did. you guys have a similar similar, mm -hmm. similar palette yeah yes I except for that cilantro <laughs> except for that cilantro like i don't think either of you guys picked any I, what I'd call floral flavors, and two of mine were floral, the honey lavender and the jasmine milk tea, which were both mm. incredible. But anyhow, so let's let's bring this back to data collection. So again, let's say I'm the ice cream store owner and I want to offer new flavors. Um, I don't really want to do a survey because then again, I'm limited by the flavors that I'm already aware of. So I decided to do a focus group to allow for open-ended responses that I wouldn't have even thought to include in my survey. So what is a focus group? A focus group usually comprises um, like six to eight people. It's led by a researcher who's usually accompanied by a note taker. Uh, focus groups are typically recorded, and then those recordings are transcribed, which allows for uh, data analysis. And what we do in terms of qualitative data analysis, we take the transcripts and we analyze them for patterns and emergent themes. 
And something that's really cool that I think people don't often realize is that the note taker plays a very important role. They're not taking notes on what people are saying. There's no real need to do that because we have the recordings, but it's important to take notes um, on the special ways that people communicate. So if there's something that people get really fired up about, if they get really passionate about something that might not be reflected in a transcript, that's important for a note taker um, to take note of. So if I was doing a focus group on this topic, I might ask people, you know, what is it that draws them to certain ice cream flavors over others? Many people respond by saying that they like it when certain ingredients are mixed into their ice cream, let's say, right? And then the beauty of a focus group is that it allows people to interact. So for example, you know, Andrea, you were talking, you like cookies mixed into your ice cream. I hate cookies mixed into my ice cream, actually. I like nuts in my ice cream, but I don't like cookies. I also don't like fruit in my ice cream. So the beauty of a focus group is that it allows people to sort of build off of each other's responses. You get very rich responses. Sometimes this leads to offshoot discussions about ice cream flavors, let's say with caramel mixed in or nuts or fruits. And it's just very cool to have this, um, you know, the interplay between the different participants in a focus group, which you don't get as an individual taking a survey. So Jess, this, this actually reminds me when I was in grad school, um, you know, if anybody's ever done a PhD, you know that you're very poor during grad school. And there was a, I can't remember like how they branded themselves, but it was basically like a survey company or a, um, a focus research group, right? Near my grad school. And they, I signed up to do various surveys and actually a lot of them happened to be taste test related things um, for like cookies or crackers or sports drinks or things like that and um and it and it wasn't focus group based it was survey based and basically like if I was going in to taste a new type of peanut butter cracker there'd be very small differences in like choices a b or c that I would taste and I would basically just have to like check off boxes that associated with each of them and I can imagine that um you know that that was probably after they had conducted their focus group to kind of pare down their final product and then kind of polish it for release to the market. Absolutely. And that is so commonly done. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. Um, the other thing I wanted to note here is that the issue with qualitative data collection methods such as focus groups is that they're only representative of the specific participants who participate. So it's, it's often very 
difficult to generalize focus group findings. They're very specific, again, to, to participants. And remember, focus groups are typically small groups of people, whereas if I were doing a survey, that's very easy to disseminate to large groups of people. We can have large sample sizes. I mean, we could have a whole other episode dedicated to sampling techniques if we want to, um, you know, focus on certain subpopulations, for example. Um, but we refer to this as external validity or the generalizability of findings. So qualitative techniques have limited external validity. So that's just something to note. So if generalizability is very important, then perhaps you don't do a focus group and instead you employ some sort of a, you know, a quantitative methodology. The other thing is that we often use a combination of quantitative and qualitative techniques, and this is called mixed methodology. And then you can utilize the quantitative and qualitative data and do something called triangulating the data. Um, sometimes, Andrea, as you said, you know, you could do these small, let's say I start with a survey and then I end up doing a focus group, you know, it informs my, my focus group questions. So there's a lot of interplay between quantitative and qualitative methodology. But no matter the type of coll data collection, the tools that we employ have to be very, very well thought out. And that's why, as I said, we, we often test surveys or we'll do mock, you know, focus groups. Um, with a small number of people to detect any issues that might minimize um, a survey's ability to collect meaningful data. So let me give you an example of a less than ideal survey question. So Andrea, do you like sweet flavors and fruity flavors? Yes. <laughs> okay. I'm okay. being intentionally difficult. <laughs> okay. Montana, do you like sweet flavors and yes. fruity flavors? Okay. So if I were was asked this question, I would say no. Now, this type of question is called double barreled. It's not a good it's not a good question because I'm asking two different questions and I'm lumping it into one. So it's possible that someone likes sweet flavors but they don't like fruity flavors. So for this we should actually divide it into two questions. Okay. Um, it's also not a good idea to ask people questions that are subjective and open to interpretation, especially when it comes to survey data. So, okay, so Andrea, do you frequently eat ice cream? <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay, Montana, do you frequently eat no, ice cream? No, I don't. Okay, and if you asked me, I would probably say yes. Now, Andrea, when I asked you, do you frequently eat ice cream, what did that mean to you? How are you quantifying that in your mind? How are you defining frequently? I mean, frequently to me is, you know, at least every other day, I think if we're talking about a food group. Hmm. Okay. Montana, how do you uh, interpret To me, it? frequently would be several times a week. I would say three to four times a week in this instance. Hmm. And for me, it's at least oh, once wow. a week. So, yes. That's and not so frequently at all. <laughs> 
So that's why it's very important if you're going to, if you want to ask about the frequency of ice cream eating, you need to define what we mean by frequently. Now, as a total aside, I used to do tobacco research uh, for many years, and um, I noticed that a lot of healthcare organizations or um, clinician offices would ask their patients, um, are you a smoker? And a lot of people answered no. But then if you analyzed the, um, you know, the, uh, what do you call it? The, the history that the clinician took when they were actually, you know, probing further and talking to the patient, it came out that, oh, actually they do smoke cigarettes socially, let's say. Yeah. And it's because or they, by, they did yeah. smoke in the past, but they weren't currently smoking. Either that or they do currently smoke, but they only do it when they're drinking, for example, or when they go out with friends. And it's because to some people being a smoker means smoking every single day. And so I've, I worked with a lot of people and had them reframe that question and instead ask, you know, how many times per week do you smoke a cigarette, for example? So again, it's very, very important to have very clear definitions of things. Now, the other thing is that for qualitative data collection, such as focus groups or interviews, you never want to ask close-ended questions. It defeats the whole purpose of qualitative techniques. So you never want to ask um, a yes or no question. Instead, you want to ask things like why and how to allow for a more meaningful exchange of information. So let, let's just go into, let, let's just do some examples here. So if I were doing a survey, I might ask all of us this. On a scale of 1 to 10, with 10 being most satisfied, oh, actually, let me back up for a second. I'm sorry. So the fl one flavor that all three of us sampled was the almond brittle ice cream. Okay. And it was so honest, almond yeah. brittle with salted ganache. Thank you, Andrea. Very important <laughs> distinction. On a scale of one to 10, with 10 being most satisfied and zero being completely unsatisfied, how would you rate the almond brittle ice cream, Andrea? Oh man, you got to put me first. Um, yeah. I would give it an eight. Okay. Montana? I would <laughs> give it a nine. Okay. I would probably give it a an 8.5. Okay. Now this doesn't apply to either of, to any of us, excuse me, but let's say I did this as a survey. I might have a follow-up question that asks, if you ranked the ice cream as five or less, what did you not like about the ice cream? And some of the uh, possible answers could be flavor, texture, aftertaste, or something else. Sorry. But... I want to know more. We all seem to really be satisfied with this ice cream, right? We rate, ranked it an 8, an 8.5, and a 9. So I want to dig into this because if we all loved it, I would like to understand what is it that we loved about the ice creams. I put together a little mock focus group. There are eight questions. So let's, let's just talk a little bit. Now, obviously, we have this N of three. Our sample size is three, so it's very small. But usually, we would do this, a focus group, as I said, is typically at least six to eight people, and often you'll do multiple groups. And you don't want to exceed eight people, just FYI, um, because then it's too many people. You have people talking over each other, and it makes it very con uh, difficult to, to stay on track if you, know, if, if you have a... Um, a specific topic that you're investigating. All right, guys. So what type of ice cream flavors do you typically purchase? 
Oh my gosh. Um, usually I go for vanilla bases or some sort of like mild flavored base, like a caramel or a strawberry. I'm not a big like chocolate ice cream person. Um, I'll eat an ice cream if it has bits of chocolate in it or chocolate covered things or chocolate cookies, but I don't like chocolate ice cream. Um, usually it has to have some sort of like swirl or cookie bits or graham like graham cracker anything with graham cracker I'm in on um and that could be like a like a a brownie cheesecake graham cracker thing or it could be a fruit like a strawberry cheesecake sort of thing um but I love a lot of the kind of like buttery creamy flavors that that come Hmm. along with that so I'm on board with the buttery and creamy, and I do, like you mentioned, caramel swirls. That's like my all-time favorite, but I don't like cookies in my ice cream. I feel like it's uh, the, the texture. It's like if I'm eating ice cream, I love that smooth and silky, and the cookie just like interrupts that experience. I Montana, tend to go think? for either something fruity or something that's a sweet, salty combo. Mm. So I also like mixing sweet and savory. Andrea, you said you like mixing sweet and savory. I do. As well, I right? like the I like the sweet and salty combos. But I even sometimes just crave like that very like saccharinely sweet. But again, it depends on the it depends on my mood. It depends on the type of day. You know, mm-hmm. and actually, like we mentioned, it even depends on the type time of year. <laughs> mm. So now I'm going to pause and I'm going to put on my analyst hat. So what I was trying to do is probe a little further. I'm kind of jumping in as participant <laughs> and. focus group lead here. But, you know, I'm trying to identify patterns as we're speaking. And so it stands out to me that we all like the milky creaminess of ice cream. We didn't all agree on what we like in our ice cream, but we did all agree on a little sweet and savory action. So that stands out to me immediately as a pattern. Okay, hold on. Now, I'm jumping around. I might not ask all of these questions just in the interest of time here, but let me ask you, are there any flavors that you strongly dislike? Oh, I'm not a fan of mint ice cream, anything, any permutation. Mint is a toothpaste. It does not belong (laughs) in ice cream. I, first of all, I cannot believe how similar mine and Andrea's flavor profiles are. Um, (laughs) And it's so funny because I love peppermints and typically like mint things, but I do do. not want mint ice cream. No, cannot handle it. I I honestly... I'm speechless. Mint is one of my very favorite. Mint chocolate chip is one of my very favorite flavors. So guys, if if let's say we had more people in this focus group, maybe I'm an outlier. And maybe the pattern overwhelmingly is that people aren't huge fans of mint. Or maybe, you know, certain people, it's a very um, polarizing flavor. So maybe I offer it, but maybe I only offer it certain times a year or as a specialty flavor or something like that. This is very interesting. You guys really do have very similar tastes. All right. So now before we recorded this episode, before before we hit record, I should say on this episode, we each took a bite of that almond brittle ice cream. Delicious, delicious. Um, So Andrea, well, actually I shouldn't have said delicious, delicious because now I'm leaving you. So pretend I didn't say that. What did you think about the almond brittle ice cream? I mean, I thought it was incredible. It was, it was almost perfect. Um, I loved, I thought the brittle itself was decadent. Um, you had really nice buttery flavor. I've had some brittles in the, you know, 
in prior instances that are kind of bland, but this was like a really nice buttery brittle, really crunchy, even in ice cream, good almond flavor. The the chocolate ganache pieces were like just salty enough. Um, and you got this kind of, and it was like a dark chocolate. So it was like almost like a truffle ganache. Um, and the ice cream itself was just very creamy and, and, you know, I thought it was a very good combination. Montana? I, I completely agree. <laughs> I loved the chunks of toffee in there. As Andrea said, you know, they're very buttery. And I'm a sucker for anything almond. So I thought the almond flavor came through really well. And I appreciated that the base of the ice cream didn't overwhelm the add-in ingredients. So they were really the star of the show, which is what they're meant to be. And so that salted ganache was just like... Wow, chef's kiss. Chef's kiss. I could not agree more. I really enjoyed this. I think, you know, Andrea, I agree with what you were saying. I loved the that salty bite of the ganache and then the creaminess of those caramel ribbons. Absolutely delicious. Um, really loved it. Decadent, creamy. Absolutely loved it. All right. So now, how would you improve this flavor, Andrea? Oh my gosh. Um, I don't want to criticize. <laughs> I think the only thing I would maybe say is that the, the, the ganache pieces were kind of big. And so sometimes, you know, if you take a scoop out of the pint, you didn't always get a little bit of the ganache in every bite. So I think if they were slightly smaller and more evenly distributed, then you could hit all those flavors in every single bite of the pint. That would be really my only critique. I don't think I would change anything. (laughs) Wow. So if I were to change anything, it would just be that I kind of wanted more of the caramel ribbons. I loved it so much, the creaminess of it. I would probably add more caramel ribbons. So, sorry, I don't mean to jump in. I think you're remembering the wrong flavor. Yeah. Seriously? (laughs) Yeah, there's no caramel ribbons in the almond brittle. Oh my God. What was it? So maybe I'm talking about the ganache. The ganache was like dark chocolate chunks. Okay, so I'm remembering the wrong ice cream. That's great. Super helpful. Thank you, Jessica. Um, well, this this ties into my next question, I guess. Of all the flavors you tried, which is your favorite and why? <laughs> Andrea? Um, geez, I don't know. I really liked all of them. Um, oh my gosh. I really liked the caramel, salted caramel ribbons ice cream. I thought that the caramel swirls were like almost like liquid toffee, which was like the richest caramel I've ever had in my entire life. And normally while I do like cookie chunks or graham cracker chunks or something in that, like the simplicity and just the decadence of the caramel was just amazing in that. So if I could just jump in, the reason I said this ties in is because that's the flavor I've been thinking about this whole time. And it's because it was my favorite flavor too. The sea salt with caramel ribbons. That's the one you're talking about, right? Yeah, it was amazing. Because it was the saltiness of the flavor of the actual ice cream itself. And then the sweet milkiness of the caramel ribbons. I guess it just really was burned into my memory. And I'm not going to lie. I may have taken a scoop of that um, when I went into my freezer (laughs) to take a a bite of the almond brittle. Um, (laughs) So things got a little mishmash in my brain. Um, Montana. So for me, it was a tie between the almond brittle and my wild card bug juice. 
Uh, as I said earlier, I tend to gravitate toward, you know, fruity flavors. And I really like the bug juice. It had like a mango hibiscus tea in it. Um, so it was like a tart fruity flavor, which I really enjoyed. So I've been doing some very informal um, analysis over here. And what I would do if I were taking a transcript of this conversation is I would analyze it for themes. So words that we kept saying or phrases we kept saying creaminess, decadent. We focused a lot on caramel, um, rich. We all seem to like nutty flavors. So that to me, I got a lot more information out of this very small uh, mock focus group that we did here than I would have from a survey Uh, Because for this particular example, it was very important to have the context, to have the open-ended questions. I would not have, um, you know, gotten this rich contextual data from a close-ended survey. So I hope that you found this little little example helpful. Um, Andrea, I know we have a little holiday treat for our listeners. Would you like to share it with them? Sure. So... As a little holiday gift for you all, if you want to do your own at-home focus group with your either super tasters or sub tasters, Salt and Straw is offering our listeners a discount on ice cream orders. So if you use code UNBIASED10, you'll get 10% off um, two collections on Salt and Straw's online shop, and that's www.saltandstraw.com, all spelled out. There's a minimum order of $45 for this, um, and it's limited to one offer per customer. There also is a limited number of uses total by Salt and Straw, um, but it will be active from now until December 31st. So if you're craving ice cream like I always am, um, get those holiday orders in. And thank you so much, Salt and Straw, for very generously um, allowing us to do this fun and delicious sampling of flavors and allowing us to incorporate it into this episode um, where we cover the science of flavors and taste buds and then also did a little fun uh, demonstration of data collection tools. So Andrea, do you want to bring us home? Sure. So thanks for joining us today. We hope you learned a thing or two both about why we taste what we taste and how companies like Salt and Straw are able to design studies in order to determine what people are going to like. And if you like our pod, please share with your friends and family and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We also want to make sure that you check out our website so you can see that at www.unbiasedscipod.com where you can find all of our show notes, references, our searchable source database, and you can even pick yourself up some Unbiased Science merch. We also want to give a special thanks to our patrons who support our pod. Um, If you want to help support us too, check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash unbiased science. We have three tiers of membership that you can choose from, and they all offer different sorts of things, um, including special private live Q&As, a private Facebook group, and some swag. So we will be giving shout outs to some of our amazing mad scientists each episode. Um, So today we randomly selected a handful and we want to give a special shout out and thank you today to Charlie May, Sunny Tai, Ann Fuentes, Abigail Taylor, and Frank Hahn. You guys are amazing. Thank you so much for your support. 
So next episode, which is going to be the first of the new year, um, is going to be on aging. And we're going to discuss the cellular processes involved in aging, as well as changing demographics and factors that can predict longevity on a population level. Um, We will continue to provide updates on COVID-19 on our social media accounts, so be sure to follow us there on Instagram and Facebook at UnbiasedSciPod. We will be taking a couple days off around Christmas, so if you try to get a hold of us, uh, we may be taking a mental health break. Um, But catch you next time on the pod, your trusted source for no nonsense, just science. Yeah, I am a scientist. I am a 